And thank you for tuning in to Renegade Files, your unsolved mystery and paranormal podcast. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting on a cool fall evening of 89 degrees here at the Jungle Villa Outpost deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files episode number four, the Japan Air Flight 1628 UFO Encounter. Japan Airlines Flight 1628 is one of those cases that is considered to be in the top five lists of many UFO researchers and enthusiasts, while at the same time going virtually unknown to the current day majority. It is perhaps one of the most credible and well-documented UFO sightings in history. The radar data, pilot-to-air traffic controller dialogue, and NORAD military observations were all recorded and documented. And the story has remained in the news for decades in Alaska, where the event took place. Recent unexplained footage filmed by military aircrafts has landed the UFO subject on the proverbial White House lawn of mainstream media, and weather balloons don't travel at 9,000 miles an hour. I guess it's some kind of progress we've made when these pilots can go on the news and not only be taken seriously, but keep their aviator jobs as well. Captain Kinju Terauchi was not so lucky. In this UFO case, we will explore the stories of what happened that early evening in the frigid airspace over Alaska. We'll hear what the pilot and his crew described, go over drawings and diagrams created by the main witness, and eavesdrop on conversations between the flight crew and the air traffic control officials who advised them as the jet tried to avoid collisions with multiple crafts and the crew attempted to make sense of what they were seeing. So stow your overhead bags, fasten your seatbelts, and join Renegade Files as we fly the mysterious skies on Japan Air Flight 1628. Flight 1628. Monday, November 17, 1986, Japan Airlines Flight 1628, a Boeing 747 cargo jet, was flying from Paris, France with a cargo of French wine bound for Tokyo. The flight was somewhere in the sky about 100 miles northeast of Fort Yukon. The pilot, Captain Kenju Terauchi, was a former fighter pilot and a senior airline pilot with over 10,000 hours of logged flight experience. Shortly after 5 p.m., the co-pilot adjusted their course slightly so the plane would pass to the south of Fort Yukon in the city of Fairbanks. 
It was while making this slow 15-degree turn that the pilot, Captain Terauchi, noticed two bright lights in the distance off the port side of his aircraft at about 30 degrees as viewed through the cockpit windscreen. The objects were near the horizon and about 2,000 feet below the 747's 35,000-foot altitude. Captain Terauchi initially thought they were perhaps military aircraft, since they were in an area where U.S. and Soviet borders were often patrolled. He returned his attention to the job at hand. Several minutes later, the captain noticed that the lights were in the same position, which caused him to take notice. The objects seemed to be moving at the same speed as the jet, and as Terauchi watched them, he saw them begin to move in ways inconsistent with traditional aircraft. He said that the two objects seemed to fly playfully, rolling around each other, separating, then rejoining, and seemingly tumbling together through the sky in the manner of, as he puts it, two bear cubs playing with each other. Captain Terauchi said these two small crafts sloshed back and forth, but they were very far away, so he and the crew felt no immediate danger. But all of that was about to change. Here is Captain Terauchi's testimony about what happened next. Unexpectedly, two ships jumped in front of our face and started shooting off lights. The inside cockpit shined brightly, and I felt warmth on my face. The firing of the exhaust jets varied. Then, three to seven seconds later, the fire, like from a jet engine, stopped and became a small circle of lights. The craft's overall shapes were square, and they were flying 150 to 300 meters in front of us, so about 500 to 1,000 feet ahead. He said, these two crafts were about the size of the body of a DC-8 jet. Now, there are a few variations of the DC-8, but they're between 150 and 187 feet long. So, whatever was in front of them was pretty big. He continues. The center area of the ship where an engine might be was invisible, and the middle body of the ship sparked an occasional stream of lights like a charcoal fire from right to left and left to right. Now, it's a bit confusing that he first says the center area of the ship was invisible. I don't know if he means he couldn't see it from his position or that it was transparent. Another thing I don't understand is in his next sentence, he says the middle body of the ship sparked an occasional stream of lights. So he could see the middle of the ship, but he could not see the center of the ship. And I'm just not sure what the difference is. This is a good indication that we may be dealing with some translation issues in much the same way as in the case of Boris Kiprianovich in our previous episode. Be sure to check that one out if you haven't yet. It's a juicy banger. If you did listen to it and liked it, it would be cool if you could share it with someone else who you think might be into it. Captain Terauchi goes on to say, We did not feel threatened or in danger because the spaceship had moved so suddenly. We probably would have felt more danger and have been prepared to escape if the spaceships were shaking unsteadily or were unable to stop. It was impossible for any man-made machine to make a sudden appearance in front of our jumbo jet flying at 565 miles per hour and then move in seamless formation. But we did not feel threatened or in danger. Honestly, we were simply astounded. So two things of note here. 
This section of Captain Terauchi's testimony has drawn some valid criticism, or at least skepticism, due largely to his presumptive use of the word spaceships. It is kind of a shock to read it in the transcripts, because it appears almost as suddenly and unexpectedly as whatever crafts appeared in front of Japan Air Flight 1628 that afternoon. But at the same time, if you consider what he is saying, the scenario is otherworldly. He said that they would have felt more danger if the crafts had been shaking unsteadily or were unable to stop. This implies that they were maneuvering smoothly and that they were able to stop. What plane do we know of that can just stop? Maybe a helicopter can to some degree, but not instantly. He describes this event at other times as well, and he seems to be saying that they were flying along. Then these two 150-foot square objects were just parked in the air in front of them, stationary. Then instantly they were moving at the exact same speed as their 747, 565 miles per hour. It's an odd story to say the least, never mind the charcoal fire light show, the cabin warming, and the tumbling baby bear behavior. But fear not, this gets even weirder. According to Captain Terauchi, it had been about seven minutes since they first saw the distant lights. Then the two ships paced in front of them for three to five minutes. During this time, Captain Terauchi tried to take a photo of the ships using his Minolta Alpha 7000 camera. But the camera shutter malfunctioned and he was unable to get any pictures before the 747 encountered some turbulence and he had to abandon the camera and go back to flying the jet and worrying about the two UFOs ahead of him. But I guess at least he tried to get a picture. As this was happening, Captain Terauchi was in radio contact with the FAA Air Traffic Control Center in Anchorage, what he calls the Anchorage Center. He said that their radio communications were degraded while the two mystery ships were close to them and operating at what he calls 2x5 quality. But that at a certain point, the two unidentified ships that had been directly in front of them departed, and as the crew watched them fly off toward the horizon, they resumed what he calls normal communication with the Anchorage Center, or 5x5 quality. The two ships moved forward and away from them to a position about 40 degrees to their left and several miles ahead. Terauchi said that at this time, the two unidentified crafts flew toward what looked to be a much larger ship that appeared to be round, dark, and approximately 10 to 12 miles away. Captain Terauchi spoke for several minutes to air traffic controller Carl Henley. The captain asked if there were any other aircraft in his vicinity both as the two ships had been directly in front of them and when the two ships had moved to between 7 and 12 miles away and joined with what looked like a larger ship. The response was negative, and no civilian or military aircraft were reported in the area. The only object visible to the air traffic control radar operators was Flight 1628. In the transcripts of the radio communications, Captain Terauchi described the lights on the crafts as white and yellow. His co-pilot mentioned in a post-incident report that these lights were abnormal and going on and off but becoming stronger and weaker, strong then weak, unlike airplane strobe lights which flash quickly. 
There was a discussion with the Anchorage Center about possible cloud cover, but the Flight 1628 crew stated that there were only thin, wispy clouds near the mountains below, but no clouds in the mid to upper air. The air currents were mostly steady and the conditions described as clear. At this time, air traffic control specialist Samuel Rich relieved Carl Henley and, having overheard the conversation about the odd yellow lights and strange crafts, radioed the NORAD Regional Operations Command Center, or ROCC, at Elmendorf Air Force Base to see if they could identify anything more on their advanced and various types of radar unavailable to the FAA Anchorage Center. Captain Terauchi continued to watch the larger ship, the mothership as he calls it, in the distance. At this point, he estimated the large craft to be about 7 to 10 miles away. He said that he thought this large craft was intentionally staying on the eastern side of his jet so that it was in the darker quadrant of the sky. The last remnants of the sunset still illuminated the western Alaskan horizon. In his 1987 FAA interview, Captain Terauchi said, I think they did not want to be seen, and that although they had not been frightened up to that point, that they eventually began to worry because they, quote, had no idea of the craft's purpose. While the flight crew at the Anchorage Center waited to hear back from NORAD, and with the large craft still visible and now seemingly tracking at the same speed as, but ahead of, the 747, Terauchi had an idea. He decided to adjust the 747's weather radar to scan the area between his plane and the horizon in the direction of the object. The weather radar would have been of no use with the two smaller crafts directly in front of them from before, but now that what they were seeing was 7 to 10 miles away, that tool might at least reflect something. Terauchi says, I set our digital weather radar distance to 20 miles, radar angle to the horizon. And there it was, on the screen, a large green round object had appeared 7 or 8 miles away, in the direction of the object that we were watching. We arrived at the sky above the Ellison Air Force Base and Fairbanks. It was a clear night. We were just above the bright city lights. He says that as they drew closer to the object they saw in the distance, a pale band of light around the craft's center slowly grew brighter. And as it did, the light revealed a silhouette of what Terauchi describes as, quote, a gigantic spaceship. The enormous ship had stopped, hanging stationary in the darkening Alaskan sky, several miles ahead and that distance closing fast, as if the giant ship were waiting for them. Captain Terauchi said the larger ship was the size of two aircraft carriers, and as such, it dwarfed his 747 jumbo jet. There was a moment of silence within the 747's dimly glowing cockpit. Then the captain said, We must get away quickly. The captain continued to converse with air traffic control, who could see no craft on their radar screens. They advised him to undertake evasive maneuvers to confirm that the object he and the crew were seeing was not an optical illusion, such as a shadow or reflection caused by the afternoon sun and the various distant clouds. 
The captain changed altitude by descending from 35,000 to 31,000 feet, and he also flew the 747 in a large 360-degree loop. With these maneuvers, the huge craft mirrored the plane's movements and tracked them in the same circle around which they flew, disproving any ideas of the vessel being a shadow or a reflection of light upon the clouds. Now, let's tune into the cockpit radio and listen to some of the actual dialogue between Japan Air Flight 1628 and the Anchorage Center Air Traffic Control on that fateful night. I previously thought that much of the original data collected by the FAA about this case had been destroyed in 2001, as they in fact claim to have done in a memo from 2009. But since then, 1,569 pages of that information has been recovered. I haven't been able to find any of the original audio, although I did find pictures of the cassette tapes. Man, I have to say, it was a special kind of helpless feeling I got when I finally discovered a link to the original audio tapes. Then when I followed it, it was a photograph of those tapes. Thanks a lot. But back to the radio chatter. With more digging, I was able to track down a few bits of the original audio. Don't ask me where I got it. Anyway, let's listen. Now, it's old, staticky, and a bit rough around the edges. But frankly, at this point, I'd be disappointed if it wasn't. So what we hear first is Captain Terauchi requesting a deviation of course to avoid the large UFO ahead. The air traffic control approves his request. At the end, we hear Captain Terauchi say, quite big. Next, we hear Terauchi say the object has moved out of his view, and air traffic control confirms this. So now, Captain Terauchi no longer sees the huge UFO. Is it gone? Was it ever there in the first place? At this point, a military officer from NORAD at Elmendorf Air Force Base contacts Anchorage Air Traffic Control to say that they now see the large craft behind Flight 1628, or as they say, in trail. Yeah, that's one that's true. We have confirmed there is a flight size of two around your 1550 squawk, one primary return only. Okay, where is he going? It looks like he is, yes. Okay, stand by. The phrase, flight size of two, indicates uninvited guests with possible hostile intentions. The Anchorage Air Traffic Control then relays this startling message to the Flight 1628 crew. Spinner 1628 Heavy, military radar advises they are picking up intermittent primary target behind you. In trail, in trail, I say We then hear the conversation about possibly scrambling fighter jets to assist the 747. Do you have anybody to scramble up there, or do you want to do that? Oh, we're going to talk to your liaison officer about that. It's starting to concern the Japan Airlines taking the 360 now, and still falling. Okay, we're going to we'll call the military desk on this. Regarding the large UFO, the captain, in his own words, wondered and feared as to their purpose. 
So the Anchorage Control Center offered to dispatch a military jet to assist the flight, but the captain refused, fearing a repeat of the Mantell incident, which was a series of events that had occurred on January 7, 1948, when Kentucky Air National Guard pilot Captain Thomas F. Mantell reportedly crashed his P-51 Mustang fighter plane and died after being sent to pursue a UFO. This is another point of contention among skeptics of the case. If the Flight 1628 crew were concerned, and an Air Force base was mere miles away, would they really refuse fighter jet assistance? But according to Captain Tarauchi, the UFO they saw was immense. It could have carried 10 or more 747s inside it. He felt that fighter jets would be futile against something of that size, and he didn't want to provoke a violent incident. That's understandable. The air traffic controllers did, however, redirect a nearby United Airlines flight, which rendezvoused alongside the Japan Air Flight to ascertain if they could also see the giant UFO and the two smaller crafts being described by Captain Terauchi. They confirmed that they could not, and at this time, Captain Terauchi said the UFOs vanished and they could no longer see them either. The United Airlines flight was then advised to retake its original course. In the end, it seems that Captain Tarauchi made the right call, as no harm nor damage ever came to his Flight 1628 aircraft or crew. Captain Tarauchi filed a formal report with the official Federation Aviation Administration that the objects he and his crew had encountered were absolutely UFOs. The first question that often comes up when we talk about someone with a fantastical UFO story is, are they just making it up? In this story, the captain, as well as the other two crew members, reported seeing the two crafts that appeared in front of the jet. The other two crew members never elaborated to the degree that Terauchi did about the ships, only saying that they saw lights. And while the other larger craft was further away, and although it registered on the plane's radar and NORAD's radar, only Captain Terauchi had visual confirmation of that object. Or at least he is the only one who went on to talk about it. It is possible that the other two crew members just didn't want to risk their jobs. In the end, that may have been a wise bit of discretion on their part. So what did Captain Terauchi, a former fighter pilot and a senior airline captain with 10,000 hours of experience, get for his troubles? He went on to give interviews to two Kyoto news reporters. The captain showed them his detailed drawings with captions and objects for scale. These drawings are included in the Renegade Files Dark Intel Files for our patrons, with links in the show notes. After these interviews, Japan Airlines grounded Captain Terauchi and moved him to the Chair Force, a permanent desk job. So if the question is, what did he gain from this story, the answer is nothing, and quite the opposite. He was eventually reinstated as a pilot after several years, and he finally retired in the Kanto region of Japan. This leads us to then FAA Division Manager of Investigations and Evaluations in Washington, D.C., John Callahan, and his remarkable story of smuggled data, hidden information, and meetings that, quote, never happened. All right, strap in. This gets fun. According to Callahan, it was about a week after the incident with Japan Air Flight 1628 when he received a call from an official at the FAA in Alaska. 
This official told John Callahan that his office was being filled every day with people from the media, and he wanted to know what he should tell them. What's the problem? Callahan asked. Well, last week we had a UFO chase a 747 across the skies up here. Callahan told the officer to gather all of the data concerning the event, both civilian and military, everything they had, and fly it overnight to his tech center. The military refused to send their information, but Callahan was sent everything the Anchorage FAA had. Callahan then, with the help of Anchorage FAA techs, set up equipment in his lab to be exactly like it had been in Anchorage. He programmed the radar data to display on radar screens, synchronized with the audio recordings made between the Flight 1628 crew and the air traffic controllers. With everything set up, Callahan played the reenactment of sorts and heard the three-way conversations between Anchorage Air Traffic Control, Elmendorf's NORAD Regional Operations Control Center, and Captain Tara Uchi's Flight 1628. According to John Callahan, the Anchorage Center never saw any anomalous objects on their radar. But, based on the audio recordings, it was obvious that the military were tracking the UFOs. As Callahan explains, the military had height-finding radar, long-range radar, and short-range radar. He believes that the military was capturing the UFOs on equipment that the Anchorage air traffic controllers simply didn't have. Details provided by the military controller, as recorded by the FAA, indicated that at some points, the UFOs were traveling at thousands of miles per hour as they maneuvered around the airspace to follow and track, move toward and then move away from the Flight 1628-747. As you recall, near the end of the encounter with the enormous mothership, as Captain Tarauchi called it, a United Airlines flight was diverted to observe the Japan Air 747 and see if they could identify or confirm the presence of the large UFO. Captain Terauchi said that, conveniently some may say, the UFOs were no longer visible when the United Airlines flight arrived. However, according to both John Callahan and the audio we just heard, unbeknownst to both of the pilots, but confirmed by audio from NORAD, the military radar operators indicated clearly that the large UFO had tucked in out of sight behind both planes and remained there until the United Airlines flight departed. After going through all this data and completing their reenactment exercise, Callahan's superior turned to him and said, quote, Don't talk to anybody until I give you the okay. The next day, Callahan was called to a briefing. To this meeting, Callahan brought all of the information he had been given, enough boxes of printouts and recorded materials to nearly fill the room. At this meeting, three agents from the FBI, three agents from the CIA, and three people from then-President Reagan's scientific study team. Callahan said there were others there as well, and he described the tone of those there as excited. Callahan and his team then showed those in attendance everything they had and answered many technical questions. The officials on President Reagan's science team concluded that this was the first time a UFO had ever been recorded on a radar for any length of time. At the end of the presentation, one of the CIA agents said, This never took place. We never had this meeting, and this data was never recorded. 
Callahan protested some, saying that if it wasn't a secret military craft, and if it wasn't a known enemy technology, then why should it be kept secret? The CIA agent gave him the line about not causing a panic among the population, at which point the CIA agent added, quote, and we're taking all of this data, which they did. John Callahan had copies of everything in his office. So Callahan had copies, and in some cases, the originals, including the primary radar target printouts, the videotape of the first analysis of the plain view display, the pilot's official report, the first FAA report, first generation copies of the radio voice communication tapes, and more. At this point, I want to dispel some of the skepticism that has arose around this case with regard to the legitimacy of John Callahan's employment and position at the FAA. Anyone looking into this case may stumble across a few posts, comments, or Twitter rants claiming that John Callahan is a fraud and that he never worked for the FAA or that there was never an FAA division of accidents and investigations. Now, it may be that some of these social media accounts posting such claims to discredit John Callahan have profiles filled with Miracle Vitamin subscriptions and hundreds of friends who are all beautiful Ukrainian girls with only one picture. But government trolls aside, some serious questions have been posted over the years as to John Callahan's credentials. Paul Dean, in a UFO Chronicles post, has done a fine job of collecting some 51 pages of official FAA employment documents which outline Callahan's entire career. Within these pages is a description of one of John Callahan's titles as Division Manager Investigations Slash Evaluations. One final observation of my own regarding John Callahan's credibility and whether or not he really was the FAA division manager of investigation and evaluations reminds me of a scene in the movie The Untouchables where Elliot Ness asks police officer Malone why he believed that he was a treasury agent just because he said he was. Officer Malone says, Who would claim to be that? Who was not? As long as we are on the subject of debunking, another detraction I have seen about Captain Terauchi is that he is what skeptics call a UFO repeater, meaning that he has claimed to see UFOs before. This is usually a red flag when it comes to UFO stories, and probably for good reason. The UFO repeater phenomenon is certainly a valid argument when it comes to old Granny Hawkins up at the country store, who's always telling customers, Mind you don't tarry out by the old Jenkins farm come midnight. That's where all them UFOs always land. I seen them bunches of times. Especially after a few slashes of that old moonshine that Jitterbug Billy Joe cooks up. But to discredit Captain Terauchi's experience because he has seen unidentified flying objects before is not the same thing. It's not unimaginable that an ex-fighter pilot and senior airline captain with 10,000 hours of logged airtime would have seen his fair share of strange things in the sky. In fact, I've heard that you would be hard-pressed to find a pilot who doesn't believe in UFOs to some degree. This story is unique because it contains documented audio, written transcripts, and radar data from both FAA and military sources, which all coincide with a sighting of multiple UFOs by a pilot and, to some extent, his crew. 
Russ Haywood has written a very clear and in-depth analysis of the entire event titled An Odd Night in Alaska, JAL 1628, a synthesis of narratives from his book, An End of Human Space. This well-written summation collects and aligns the FAA audio transcripts with the FAA interviews of the crew and a long summary of the following investigations. Reading through it is far beyond the scope of this podcast, but I'll link to it in the show notes so anyone who wants to can see it for free. Also, some of the other deeper research from this episode will be in the Dark Intel files on Patreon, so check that out from the link in the notes as well. It's always free to visit our Patreon page, and there's some free extra content there too. There are a few more things I want you to know about the investigation by the FAA into Flight 1628, mainly what happened when they landed. After all of the radar, tracking, and air traffic control chatter, Captain Terauchi and the Japan Air Flight cargo of French wine did land at their scheduled refueling stopover in Anchorage, Alaska. Upon arrival at the ANC International Airport, they were immediately met at the exit ramp offloading area by FAA Inspector Jack Wright, Special Agent James Derry and Agent Ronald Mickle of the U.S. Transportation Department's Security Division, and Mr. Shimbasi, the Japan Airlines Operation Manager at Anchorage. The crew and this group proceeded to the Japan Airlines Operations Building for an initial interview about the encounter. Special Agent James Derry said the crew was, quote, normal, professional, rational, and had no apparent drug or alcohol involvement. It was in this debriefing that Captain Terauchi drew several diagrams and drawings just two hours after the encounter. The three drawings are on Japan Air letterhead and they appear in three top to bottom panels. The top drawing is of an overhead view of the 747 and the two square ships that appeared instantly in front of the jet and flew in unison with it for about seven minutes. To the side of this illustration is a larger version of the backs of both craft as seen from the cockpit with their multiple nozzles and circular lights described by the crew. The second or middle panel is of the huge two aircraft carrier sized UFO. It looks kind of like a walnut shell, sort of a fat sideways oval with a center ridge around its equator. Captain Terauchi has drawn a minuscule 747 next to it for scale. And when you notice that, it's a scary image for sure. Below that in the third panel is a drawing with notes that shows the in-flight weather radar screen and where and when they saw the object appear on radar with what I am told are radar settings, but they are in Japanese and handwritten Japanese on a document drawn in pen in 1986 and photocopied and digitally moved around who knows how many times since then. I can't read the words, but the drawings are clear. It's a cool document to check out for sure. As for some of the other research I've done on this case, and there's a lot, all of it is in the Dark Intel Files post for this episode on Patreon, but here are just a few of the things that you can get there. The confirmation documents of John Callahan's FAA career I mentioned earlier. The Synthesis of Narratives by Russ Haywood. A Washington Post article from January 2nd, 1987. The official Japan Air Flight 1628 flight path maps. And with an amazingly deep collection of documents compiled by the Black Vault Project, I link to the main page because there's just so much there. But of note there are recorded images of the radar data, some of them with captions. 
transcripts of the FAA interviews with Captain Terauchi, a chronology of events with a memo cover letter from the U.S. Department of Transportation, transcripts of the air traffic controller conversations with the flight crew, FAA public affairs, news releases, and it goes on and on and on. One of the coolest things in this cache of documents is a collection of letters written to the FAA from, I'm not sure how many, but hundreds of people. Apparently, when the story first appeared, the FAA Public Affairs Office published in multiple newspapers that they would provide all of the information they had about the case, some of it for free and some of it for a charge, to anyone who requested it. The Black Vault Archive has all of the letters sent in to the FAA requesting the information about the JAL Flight 1628 UFO encounter. There are 10 folders of these letters, with each folder containing between 59 to 147 pages of letters, and most of those pages are multiple letters. Reading through some of the letters, many handwritten, some of them typed, some like telegrams, was just amazing. Just remembering that we once communicated in that kind of handwritten way, the sincerity in the words, some from engineers, some from teachers, and some from kids, all writing letters to the FAA to request anything the agency would give them about a story of a UFO. So cool. You don't have to look far these days to find someone giving our government a hard time about something they did or didn't do. And believe me, I should know. But when I was reading through those letters, I was struck by how cool it was that they had saved them all. They're like a time capsule of a wide range of people genuinely interested in something unexplained. It made me wonder how many other cool things are filed away in some government basement that we'll never know about. Go read through some of those letters. It's really fun. So this case is an unusual one. On one hand, you have an experienced, respected pilot, and to a lesser extent his crew, who see something remarkable. Some of it seen by NORAD radar. The audio we can find confirms that the pilot saw something that was, in his words at the time, quite big. Government officials filed this case as the first time a UFO had been visually seen by a pilot and simultaneously captured by radar. But then we have the pilot, known for seeing UFOs in the past and using terms like spaceship and mothership in interviews with both the FAA and the press. He contacted the press and gave two interviews right away, which in UFO trutherland is almost never a sign of credibility. But then again, all he got for this was a demotion and many years of ridicule. But through it all, he has stuck to his story, and by all accounts, is a friendly, level-headed, intelligent man with a charming sense of humor. At one point, a reporter asked Captain Terauchi why he thought the UFOs had followed and tracked his 747 across Alaska. Captain Terauchi responded with a smile and said, Well, we were carrying a large cargo of expensive French Beaujolais wine. Perhaps they wanted to drink some. This event was widely reported at the time. Tom Brokaw on the Nightly News did a spot on it. The official position of the FAA in the end was that the radar data was incorrect and the images recorded as the second craft were just an echo of the 747. But John Callahan never bought that. I'll give you my rough summation of what he thought about the whole thing. 
He points to Teruchi's 30 years of flight experience. He says this is a captain who knows these skies, who says it was a clear night, who sees a ship as big as two aircraft carriers. He sees it in front of him. He picks it up on his in-flight radar right where it appears to be. The giant ship moves out of this captain's view, but at that moment, military radar operators at NORAD capture the object on their radar, and they say it has moved in behind Flight 1628. Callahan says of the radar data that anyone who could see would know there was another craft there. Callahan insists that the pilot's eyewitness account is independently confirmed by the radar data. As he puts it in his own words, quote, everybody had that target on their radar somewhere along the line. If the pilots say it was a UFO, who are we to say it's not? John Callahan also says that one of the final reports on the incident was initially submitted to the FAA in a personal statement by an unnamed official from the center in Anchorage, Alaska, and that in this report, the air traffic control specialist does describe their imaging systems as having recorded the UFO as a target on some of their radar screens. Upon receiving this report, the FAA then made this controller change the wording in his report from targets to position symbols, which makes it sound as if there was really nothing there. Concerning this alteration, Callahan says, quote, When I read that, I thought, oh, there's something fishy here. Somebody's worried about something or other, and they're trying to cover it up, end quote. Callahan also goes on to say some very interesting things. He says, and I'm paraphrasing some here, but he has effectively said that it is suspicious that the FAA official statements were revised by some of the people who wrote them after he and his team disclosed this information they had to the FBI and the CIA. He also said, do I think it was mysterious that the military tapes disappeared? Well, it wasn't right. And the first indication makes it look like it must have been some covert military operation that they were doing up there. But if it was, why test in a known air shipping lane with heavy commercial traffic? Or that the military knew more than we did about who those visitors were and they didn't want anyone else to know. And of course, the people who are involved at the lower levels don't really know what's going on above them. If someone calls and says, erase those tapes, they just erase the tapes. They really don't care. When they asked Callahan what he thought, he told them, it looks like we had a UFO up there. The reason it wasn't on the FAA tapes is because it was too large of an aircraft and it was picked up as weather, so they wouldn't record it. But there are guys who say they saw it on the screens, that the Japanese pilot saw it, the Japanese pilot drew pictures of it. Eventually, they gave the Japanese pilot a hard time because of what he was saying, that he was embarrassing his country. Our military controllers say they saw it. Our FAA controllers say they saw it. Our FAA controllers, after a period of time, came back and said they really didn't see a target. They saw something else, which makes it sound like someone is helping them fill out their reports. Therefore, that looks suspicious. He goes on to say that he thinks that the country is set up to marginalize people who come forward with credible stories. Callahan says, 
all the UFOs that are seen on the television shows are always seen by rednecks out in the country going coon hunting or alligator hunting at night. You don't find any depictions of some professional individual saying, last night, let me tell you what I saw. And Callahan says he thinks that's all by design. He says, that's the image they put out because it allows the outside people who happen to see a UFO to be immediately classified as inferior. He also says, it's a good thing I don't care about my image. In the end, this is a really cool UFO story. It's backed up by credible testimony and literally mountains of documents and information. I have to say, I actually get a little bit nervous when the modern mainstream media starts seriously reporting UFO sightings. It makes me wonder what they're up to. To be perfectly honest, I don't trust them when they say there aren't any UFOs. Why should I trust them when they say that there are? <laughs> it seems suspicious to me. Frankly, at this point, I'd like to know what their greater plan is, or maybe I wouldn't want to know. But it sure is fun to dive into a case like this. I hope you had fun listening. Look for new Renegade Files episodes every 10 days on the 1st, the 11th, and the 21st of every month. The Japan Airlines 747 had a saucer go around it. The papers mysteriously disappeared from the FAA office. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now landing back in our destination at Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. The local time is midnight, and the temperature is 91 degrees. For your safety, please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened until we have come to a complete stop. At this time, you may use your electronic devices. Please check around your seat for any personal belongings, such as the stylish Renegade Files t-shirts you purchased from our store link in the show notes while on this trip. On behalf of Renegade Files Airlines, I'm your captain, Lex Gordon. Thank you for flying the mysterious skies. Stay wild, Matrix child. <laughs>